The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Great, Father. Great Good to, to be see here. You. Yes. Blessed Holy Week to you, Father. Well, I wish the same, certainly. Yep. Father, any uh, prayer requests to begin the program tonight, as usual? Well, always, Tom. Uh, please pray for our country, right? Pray for the church. Uh, individuals, well, I ask you again to pray for Paul Riley. We pray for his recovery from that uh, terrible uh, accident that occurred. Um, please pray for Tom Wright also, his family. Uh, of course, Joe Percher and uh, Donna King. And and uh, had a request for uh, Mr. Huskin, H-U-E-S-K-E-N. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name. No, I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. But he's very gravely ill right now, and perhaps dying in hospice. So please keep him in your prayers as well. And um, so many others we know who are in need of our prayers. I commend them all to the good hearts and uh, the faith of, of, our, of our viewers to pray for all. And all those in the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. We also have quite an extensive list in our own Sunday bulletin. And uh, so, you know, I, I put them all in the, in the Immaculate Heart of Mary and asked her to keep, keep them all there. So uh, that's my prayer for them. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Father. Uh, well, we have uh, some viewer email that we wanted to try and work through tonight. Father, we um, intended to do this last time, but didn't, didn't get through them all. So. That's right. I should mention, by the way, also the sure. father of Arthur Pappas, who's uh, quite ill and... Uh, Mr. Donald Ponce, Mr. Ponce also is is ill and suffering, uh, you know, from a fall, the consequences of a fall. So please pray for him too. And as we go through the program, I'll be thinking of others also and praying for them. But uh, I'm sorry, Tom, go right no, ahead. No, thank you, Father. Thank you. Lots to pray for. Um, okay, well, the first question I have here, Father, this uh, viewer writes in and asks, how would Father Jenkins respond to someone who defends obedience to Vatican II popes based on the Catholic Encyclopedia uh, 1917 article on the Church's indefectibility. Uh, this article says that the Church will be preserved from error and can never lose the apostolic hierarchy. So how would you respond to that argument, Father? Okay, and what was the beginning of that? How would Father Jenkins someone respond to someone who defends obedience who to defends Vatican II popes? Yeah, respond to, to, to Vatican someone II popes. who defends obedience to the Vatican II popes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, I would uh, tell them that it is wrong to obey anyone who is commanding them to do something uh, that is wrong, that is uh, against the faith, right? And the Vatican II uh, pontiffs, or the pontiffs of Vatican II, and the church that came out of Vatican II, are modernists. They represent modernism, which St. Pius X said was the synthesis of all heresies. So anything that would 
um, institute modernism in the place of Catholicism would be something that no Catholic can do in good conscience. Um, I mean, you know, everyone everyone knows knows the answer to that question, really, in the sense that everyone knows that even if your own father commands you to do something immoral, you can't do it. So um, I would say the question that they have to answer is, <clears throat> how can a valid Supreme Pontiff and Vicar of Christ command the faithful to do something that is modernist and therefore contrary to the faith? <clears throat> that is a question that needs to be answered, right? <clears throat> the fact that uh, what has come out of Vatican II is modernism, and it is contrary to the traditional Catholic faith, is patent. It's rather obvious. Uh, and if it's not obvious, then uh, someone is, is not paying attention, <laughs> because it is, it is very clear. Um, and if they, you know, one can debate that if they want to, but the fact is, um, in the 15-year uh, tenure of Paul VI from 1963 to 1978, the, ma the Mass was changed, the, the sacraments were all changed, all the rites of the sacraments were changed. And uh, there was a massive, massive difference such that what came out of Paul VI's reign in 1978 was virtually unrecognizable as the same faith that was being practiced in the religion of 1963. So, um, um, you know, if someone wants to ignore reality, there's not much you can do to convince them. <clears throat> but the fact is, even if one uh, does not raise the question of whether the Vatican II and post-Vatican II popes where it could be actually popes or not. That's another question. The fact is that we cannot obey anyone, including a pope or, as St. Paul says, an angel from heaven who comes and preaches a different gospel. Uh, St. Paul said, <clears throat> let him be anathema, even if an angel. He said, even if we, the apostle, Paul, or an angel from heaven come and teach you a different gospel than what we've taught you, let them be anathema. So it simply isn't right to do something that is contrary to the faith. And the, the changes that were brought in uh, after Vatican II were definitely uh, a rewrite of the faith. And Francis now has brought it to its logical conclusion in trying to basically uh, create a different church, which he calls the Synodal Church, which is not the church as Christ founded it. Uh, again, you know, we could discuss that. At, at some length, if people want to, but I think it's demonstrable that it is not the church that Christ founded. It is the church that Francis is founding. Um, he, he has struck from the list of his titles, Vicar of Christ, he struck that. It's no longer in the list of titles that he claims. And uh, people wonder, well, why would he do away with the, the Pope's title as Vicar of Christ and it's very obvious he's been called by his own cardinals the successor of Christ. Not the successor of Peter, the successor of Christ. So he is today's Christ, and he is going to be founding his own church, according to his own image and likeness, right? And his own, his own belief or lack of it. Um, so, in any case, um, I won't say any more than that right now. Uh, how would I respond to one who defends obedience 
um, to the post-Vatican II popes in light of the statement uh, we find in the um, in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Uh, the, the fact is that uh, um, post-Vatican II popes, if they are indeed um, successors of Peter on the throne, uh, then they, they do not have the authority, no one has the authority to command something that is contrary to the faith that Christ himself has taught and the religion that he himself has commanded us to follow regarding the Mass, the sacraments, and all of the essential things. So. Okay, thank you, Ken. That is uh, disobedience <clears throat> to Christ masquerading as obedience mm. to man. Okay, next email. Uh, Father, could you speak on St. Thomas Aquinas' response in the Summa Theologica on whether a prince forfeits his dominion over his subjects on account of apostasy from the faith so that they no longer owe him allegiance? Uh, yes, Tom, actually. The, the writer is referring to the Summa, the Secunda Secunde, the second part of the second part of the Summa. And uh, he's referring to question 12. And I happen to have that here, actually. thought it was interesting. Um, um, St. Thomas raises the question whether a prince forfeits his dominion over his subjects on account of apostasy from the faith, so that they no longer owe him allegiance. St. Thomas gives three objections, uh, basically making the point that a, a prince does not forfeit his dominion and his subjects continue to owe him their allegiance. But St. Thomas's answer is, as he says, said contra, on the contrary. Gregory VII, holding to the institutions of our holy predecessors, we by our apostolic authority absolve from their oath those who through loyalty or through the sacred bond of an oath owe allegiance to excommunicated persons, and we absolutely forbid them to continue their allegiance to such persons until these shall have made amends. Now, uh, Pope Gregory Seventh, as you know, Hildebrand, lived in the late, eight, late thousands, right, the 11th century, and um, he had to struggle with the lay investiture issue, and he had even the emperor from Germany, um, Henry, uh, contesting with him, so that he ultimately had to excommunicate Henry. This was a very practical um, matter for Pope Gregory VII. Um, in fact, uh, Pope Gregory released all the nobles who were bound to allegiance to Henry. Uh, he released them from that oath. Uh, of allegiance because of Henry's apostasy, or Henry's excommunication, actually, from, from the faith. So um, this was a very practical thing for him, and it became even more practical when uh, Henry came and begged for forgiveness and restoration um, to the church, having the excommunication listed, lifted, whereupon it appeared that the oaths of allegiance were once again in effect. The problem was, of course, that once the nobles saw that Henry had been restored to his power 
and they were once again subject to him, they uh, realized, of course, that they had incurred his wrath by supporting the Pope against him. And uh, then Henry emerged from this with greater power because now the nobles were much more afraid of him and uh, did not, would not cross him. And so Henry came to Rome, besieged Rome, and uh, Pope Gregory VII, Hildebrand, had to be rescued by, I think, William Guiscard from uh, Naples. And uh, there he died in exile. And the Pope Gregory VII is quoted as saying, I have uh, loved justice and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. No doubt there were those who were accusing him of being the, the bad guy, so to speak, in this, but, but he, it was because he loved justice and hated iniquity. That was why he was dying in exile in the kingdom of Naples, away from Rome. But um, this question of whether a, uh, a once Catholic prince who uh, either apostatizes from the faith or, in this case, was excommunicated from the faith would lose his jurisdiction. Uh, St. Thomas says that this question does not apply to princes who were never Catholic to begin with. Uh, those who never had the faith or belonged to the church could not apostatize from it or be excommunicated from it because they never belonged to it. <clears throat> but he said where, where it concerns a matter of oaths of fidelity or fealty and medieval society was actually held together by these oaths of fealty, faithfulness, fidelity, oaths to God, that uh, a person, whatever rank he had in society, uh, you know, owed certain things to a higher lord, noble, sire, whoever it might be. Um, uh, when, when the um, superior authority betrayed the faith and apostatized or were excommunicated, then the oaths of fealty taken no longer applied. They were conditioned on that fidelity of the prince to the, to the faith, to the church. That's what happened with uh, Henry when Gregory VII excommunicated him. Uh, as I say, the oath of fealty of the nobles uh, was rendered null and void at that time. So St. Thomas does answer that a, uh, a Catholic prince who... Um, violates his own oath, as it were, of fealty to the church and to the faith, therefore loses the right of, uh, of governance, of dominion over those who are subject to him by oaths of fealty. Here's what St. Thomas says. Now, it is not within the competency of the church to punish unbelief in those who have never received the faith. According to the saying of the apostles, what have I to do to judge them that are without, he says. She can, however, pass sentence of punishment on the unbelief of those who have received the faith, and it is fitting that they should be punished by being deprived of the allegiance of their subjects. For this same allegiance might conduce to great corruption of the faith, since, as was stated above in Article 1, Objection 2, a man that is an apostate, with a wicked heart devises the evil, soweth discord, in order to sever others from the faith, 
Consequently, as soon as sentence of excommunication is passed on a man on account of apostasy from the faith, his subjects are ipso facto, that means automatically, absolved from his authority and from the oath of allegiance whereby they were bound to him. So that's St. Thomas's judgment on this question. Um, so, it, what there is to comment on it, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what more um, is asked there, but that's the point St. Thomas made. It's, okay. it's a very, I'm, I'm glad that they brought this question up. I think it's very, very good, a very important question. Yeah, okay. All right, uh, another email. Father, uh, this viewer says, with the rise of people being, quote-unquote, spiritual but not religious, uh, I've come across a symbol called the Hamza Hand. It is said to be a spiritual protection against evil spirits. On the surface, it seems to be false worship and superstitious. But Father, is there a Catholic teaching on this symbol? And how would one defend against arguing that those symbols are superstitious, but Catholic items such as the St. Benedict medal or the brown scapular are not? Well, there, there are several questions in here. First of all, I asked if you're familiar with the Hamza hand, right? And uh, I wasn't, but I, I am somewhat familiar with it now. And they say it's an ancient Mesopotamian symbol. And has basically filtered through various cultures, uh, through pagan Egypt and uh, other areas. And uh, it's supposed to ward off evil spirits, uh, notably the Malocchio, the evil eye in Italy, and so on. Uh, those who are not familiar with the H-A-M-S-A, -A, the Hamza hand, right? They can look that up if they want to. It's basically, it can be uh, out like that or turned, you know, inverted too. And it has a different meaning and a different power, supposedly, whether it's fingers are pointing up or the fingers are pointing down. But it's the palm out that is shown. And uh, Hamza, I understand, means five, and it refers to the five fingers and the figures each signify something, something different. But it is, no doubt, it is superstition. Clearly, it is just superstition. Evil spirits are not uh, in any way uh, impressed with the Hamza <laughs> hand, saying, oh, there's the Hamza hand. I better stay away. You know, I'm going to get smacked by the Hamza hand. Uh, it, it's, it's just pure superstition. But um, the... Um, well, I mean, you haven't been to Italy, Tom, I know, but, you know, you still find people with a red, like, curled horn, um, and that's supposed to, you know, the quarter is supposed to uh, turn away the evil eye and ward off the evil eye and just a variety of other things like that. Um, I mean, I've seen people go through the process of pouring pepper into the water to see how it spreads and, you know, these are all superstitious, the practices. Um, some might say, well, on the surface of them, they're somewhat childish and people don't necessarily regard them as being superstitious or even contrary to the Catholic faith. But to think that these things actually have any, any power, we call them occult powers, uh, such as like an intelligence behind them to, to answer your questions about occult realities. That is not only non-scientific and non-rational, but it really is, in a sense, at least implicitly invoking uh, evil spirits, even in the process of thinking of warding them off. Uh, by what power would a Hamza hand any, have any power over evil spirits? Uh, unless the evil spirits were willing to give it that power, or unless there were other even worse spirits behind them, right? 
Um, so any of these things, uh, the Ouija board and, and, and uh, the rest, they all involve uh, summoning or somehow invoking occult spirits to answer questions or to exercise a certain power over other evil spirits. These are not from heaven. Uh, the Hamza hand is not the hand of God, that's for sure. Okay. Now one might say, well, what about sacramentals, like the St. Benedict medal and so on? Well, there is one true God. And uh, the one true God can give us emblems that are emblems of his true power. And uh, those, those powers are often at work through the saints, uh, like such as St. Benedict and so on. God gives them power over evil demons. We read that in the Gospel, that our Lord sent the apostles out and he gave them powers over these demons to command them, right? And the apostles went out and they did exercise uh, in the name of Jesus, and uh, successfully so. Uh, so our Lord can give his powers. In fact, that's what he did when he ordained them priests. He gave them the power of sanctifying through, through the sacraments, through the Mass. Um, so, you know, for us Catholics, it is understandable that there are powers in the world that are occult powers. When we refer to occult powers, we're talking generally about demonic powers or, you know, evil powers that are exercised in, in spite of God. Um, but God forbid that we should invoke any of those. Um, but there are the hidden powers of God um, manifested in his church throughout the ages and, and in the lives of his saints. Um, you know, you read what St. Uh, the, the Gospels talk about the signs that would accompany the preaching of the Gospel. And um, there you have the power of God. So, you know, if one were to say, well, you know, they have the Hamza hand and we have the St. Benedict medal, isn't it the same? And the answer is no. It's, it's a, the complete opposite. Because one invokes the occult powers of some creature, at least implicitly, and they're not a blessed creature uh, in the grace of God. And the other actually appeals to the, to the mercy and the power of God himself. And he himself has explicitly given these powers um, to give us sacramentals, even as Jesus himself gave us sacraments. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with turning to the one true God and asking his help through, through these means. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do not have, believe that these things have magical powers. Um, actually, that's quite contrary to the whole idea of a sacramental, because a sacramental uh, is only as valuable as the strength of the faith and the hope and the charity of the one using it, right? Mm -hmm. okay. But it is actually a, an incitement and a... Um, it is meant to uh, increase their faith and their hope and charity as an emblem of God and his love and his power. And as such, it actually uh, does cause evil spirits uh, great discomfort. Remember what Father Mort said, the exorcist in Rome, that the, the demons would say during exorcisms, we suffer more here than we do in hell. And uh, if you examine why, you'd find it's because there they encounter the holy name of Jesus and Mary, Joseph, taken lovingly. They don't deal with that in hell. But also the sacramentals of holy water and uh, the crucifix and so on. I mean, these are, these are things that confront them 
with a very tangible expression of God's love. And that's what the sacramentals are. Okay. Well, I have a uh, somewhat related question, Father, about divination. The viewer says, I understand that the church forbids fortune-telling and contacting with the dead. But if someone does participate in this activity, thinking that they are contacting a dead relative, are they actually contacting demons under the guise of their dead relative? They are. I mean, either that or it's, it's just a sham and a fraud. I mean, so many of these fortune tellers have, have got, well, they're basically magicians. They've got things set up to um, give one the, the impression uh, that they are, you know, that the, the, the fortune teller is somehow in contact with the dead. And the dead has, has the um, fortune teller has summoned, right, the spirit of the dead to come and speak to the person. They, they're very good at what they do. And uh, what they do is deceive people. Um, but, um, I mean, let's face it, if you, if you have somebody who's really a psychic, and they have to keep working at an 800 number and answer these questions, rather than just win the lottery repeatedly and have no need to work any longer, if you've got a poor psychic or a psychic who needs your business to pay their bills, uh, there's already a problem involved here that you've got to realize, you know. Why should they be able to foresee your good fortune when they can't seem to handle their own and need you to come through the door and slip them, you know, a payment uh, for what they're telling you when, by all rights, if, if they're legit, they, sh they shouldn't need that uh, to survive on. But anyway, um, regardless, the... Um, there are those who are very deceptive, and uh, uh, Houdini, remember the, the magician Houdini, uh, skate artist, uh, whatever else you want to call him, he used to uh, uh, be very much involved in debunking these things, going, taking part, and then discovering what they were doing, and un un unmasking what they were up to. And time and time again, he would just see right through what they were doing and expose the trickery of it all. Um, so, uh, if, there, if there is any spirit contacted, yes, it would be a demonic spirit. Remember, remember, remember uh, Saul, the first king of Israel? Uh, Saul was at a loss once as to what to do, and uh, he was facing a terrific battle. He saw a great danger. He went off to con contact the, the witch of Endor, right? And so spirits were summoned, and lo and behold, who came but Samuel. Now, Samuel was still alive, I think, at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'd have to go back and check that. But Samuel appeared, right? And he came uh, to rebuke Saul and to condemn what he was doing, consulting the witch of Endor. So, I mean, it's not entirely impossible that, some, that God would send some blessed spirit to rebuke the whole process and rebuke the people who are involved in it, as happened with Saul. Uh, but uh, barring that, uh, <laughs> you'd have to say if they contacted a spirit of any kind, it was an evil spirit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Father, we have a, uh, an email from one of our favorite viewers, a uh, question about mental prayer. Uh, she uh, cites St. John of the Cross in his book, Ascent of Mount Carmel, and he uh, apparently says that 
many people uh, spend too long in the beginning steps and the, the beginning stages of mental prayer, and they, they do not advance in it. Um, she again cites St. John of the Cross to the effect that um, these steps are meant to be just that, steps to something more, to something uh, more profound contemplation. But uh, she asked, Father, why do you think people um, do not progress in mental prayer as they should? Do you think it's just a matter of fear that they remain in the beginning stages of mental prayer rather than progressing throughout it? Well, I don't know. It's a choice, uh, fear. I don't know that they're afraid to go forward. I think the point that she makes is a good point, that they get stuck. They get stuck on the steps, you know. Um, and um, perhaps it is, perhaps their thought is, uh, assuming that she's right in that, I think she is, there are people who are kind of perfectionists and they figure, well, I can't move on beyond these steps unless I have mastered them. So I, I need to have absolute mastery over these beginning steps of mental prayer and until I get them perfectly right, I cannot move up the ladder. And uh, so they, they literally, they get stuck on them. Whereas what she's saying, and she's right about that, is they should use them as steps to move higher, um, not as vantage points to, uh, uh, you know, try to, uh, let's say, master it one step at a time in the process of, of trying to go up the stairs. Now imagine somebody who is actually trying to go up your stairs. Okay. Uh, imagine somebody trying to, uh, you know, go up the stairs from the ground floor to the second floor of their home. And their thought was, you know, I have to uh, pause at each step and I have to make sure that my foot is entirely secure on the step and that I've taken this step correctly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they feel comfortable here and all the rest, you know, whatever standards they might set for themselves before I can put my foot up and go on to the next step. Um, how long before they actually just come tumbling down, you know? Would they even get past the first or second step? Some people would never do it <clears throat> because they're so focused on the step itself. Um, when, when you're going up the steps, I mean, yes, there are people who are infirm. I understand that. I'm one of them. And yeah, we might find it necessary to focus on the individual steps and hold on to the railing and so on for steadiness. Uh, but at the same time, we can't, Forget the purpose is not to just go up the steps forever, but we're trying to have, we have a, a goal, a destination. We want to get to the second floor, right? Uh, we want to actually arrive at the landing um, for the second floor. And, um, you know, there are people who, who just seemingly uh, look at the steps as an infinite flight of steps to go up carefully one by one and forget about the, the, the goal to move on and, and, and to get up to the top. Um, if that's what she's describing here, that would be a real obstacle. So uh, the moral of the story is people should not uh, focus on the steps as though perfect, gaining perfection on each step was the key. I mean, there might be certain mystical rites of the Orient where you're being initiated into certain mystic mysteries or something like that, of uh, some mystery religions, and you have to master the one stage uh, before you can be inducted into the higher level or something. But God forbid that that should be what's animating people who want to meditate on, on you know, the love of God. Um, they should want to go forward and want to move higher. And uh, so um, they should not let the steps be the, 
the enemy of um, of their success, of their progress. If they if they focus too much on the steps uh, as being the essential part of the the meditation, they're not going to make any progress. They're going to literally trip and give up because they're not getting anywhere. They're stuck. So uh, they have to actually keep their eye on the on the goal, which is uh, a real meditation, uh, such that the steps become almost invisible. I mean, who is it who runs up the steps? The kids. Are they paying attention to the steps? Not at all. Are they thinking of the steps as they're running up the steps? No, they're never thinking about the steps. You know, they'll take the steps three or four at a time. And without even thinking about it. Um, and in that sense, with regard to making progress spiritually, we have to be more like the little kids than like the elderly people we are, you know, and painfully taking each step at a time and then making sure we've got securely one step before we take the nap. That's not the key to progress in the spiritual life. Uh, the period of progress is to keep the goal, the goal in mind. We really want to get to the point where we're not even aware that we're taking these steps. They just become so ingrained. And we just kind of easily uh, move through them. Uh, almost they become second nature to us. Father, could you describe what's at the top of the steps to uh, keep the analogy alive? What is, if we talk about these beginning stages of mental prayer, what do they lead you to? Mean, from all of my experience of the unit of way. Yes, Father. <laughs> well, we could be in trouble there, Tom, okay. if I tried that. <laughs> but I mean, at least if you, if you get up the step, you know, first few steps, Maybe you can see over the edge of the top step. Maybe, maybe I've been there a little bit. I being perhaps facetious and maybe vain to think <laughs> that I even got that far. But I mean, the saints have described the ultimate step is like uh, the illuminative way, and then onto the contemplative way is really having a kind of communion with with God in the sense that. Um, the, the sense of the divine presence and, and God's awareness of you. And you just have that, that awareness of God's awareness of you and his love for you. It just kind of fills your soul, fills your entire mind and heart. And I liken it, I liken it to this, okay. Uh, I've said this before, you know, and, uh, but I, I keep coming back to it because I, it, it kind of expresses what I'm thinking, however right or wrong it may be. Uh, you know, imagine yourself beholding a, a spectacular sunset. And it's just the kind of thing that just takes your breath away, you know. It's just so beautiful. It's like overwhelmingly beautiful. And it seizes all of your attention. It fills your entire mind. There's not another thought in your mind. The only other thought that might come into your mind at one point is, you know, I want to get, I want to get my, my wife, my husband, my children. I want them to see this. You know, because you love them too, and you want them, uh, you want them to enjoy the beauty of what you see here. Uh, you want them to enjoy the benefit of what you see here. The saints in heaven must think like that too. They must think when they see the glory of God, they they must be moved by that same divine love uh, to want us to have that, to share that, because that's what goodness does. It wants to share what is beautiful and what is good. And uh, which is why God created us, actually. So um, I think when we are in, involved in mental prayer, that is our goal. <laughs> but the goal is 
something far more wonderful than a magnificent sunset. The goal actually is a contemplation of what is invisible uh, and, and yet real, more real than anything else. That we, anything we can see or hear or touch, and that is uh, the mystery of, of God's goodness and his love. And just have the, well, the, the, again, words fail, the, the sense of this, the awareness of this, whatever. But just have that idea, uh, that thought, um, pervade the mind so that it, it just uh, completely captivates our attention. Um, is it possible? Well, yeah, the saints have gone into ecstasy doing this. You know, they're just completely uh, unaware and insensitive to anything earthly because of just the aware, their awareness of God's awareness of them, and his love for them, and his goodness, his greatness, his splendor. Even in this life, it's not, it's not the beatific vision, but it's about as close as it is possible. Even, even that requires a special grace from God to elevate the mind and the heart. To experience that, but it's still not to be a vision. It's not what the saints see, um, but it is very powerful. It, Father, and uh, this is ultimately what's on the, on the top step. Is that, Father? Is that something that the average person can aspire to attain to? I mean, this sounds sounds like something reserved for saints. No, well, yeah, but the average person is is designed to be a saint. That's what God calls them to. There's a certain Jesuit school, Scaramelli and his crowd, that said that, no, there were only certain souls that were called by God to really achieve sanctity in this life. The rest of us were just kind of muddlers and meddlers, and we kind of get through and be lucky to make it into purgatory. And That's all God really wants for us. He just wants us to make it into purgatory, and we'll have to uh, go through the purifying fires of purgatory. The, the question is not whether that's what actually happens, because it evidently does, that very, very few go straight to heaven. Most go to purgatory uh, of those who are saved, and perhaps most of all are lost um, to hell. But uh, Garrigou Lagrange, Father Garrigou Lagrange, and others of the Dominican school, and uh, uh, like himself and, and others, say that, no, actually God creates each and every soul for sanctity. He wants to justify every soul of sin uh, as he redeemed every soul on the cross. He wants to sanctify every soul by grace, and he wants to finally glorify every soul in heaven. But our Lord said, God not, wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live, right? Um, but uh, the reality is not that. But that doesn't mean that, that God created us for what we did, we've done to ourselves. God didn't create us so that we would sin. You might say he created us in spite of the fact that we would sin, because he still wants to glorify us in heaven. And he gave the power to become sons of God, right? Children of God, by grace. So, uh, no, every, everyone is called by God, has a vocation. To know God, love him, and serve him in this life, and to be happy with him in the next. It's just that, in fact, there are very few who uh, realize that vocation by cooperating with grace. Yeah. Okay, that, very good. That's the sad part. <laughs> but the fact that anyone cooperates and is glorified in heaven, even if there was only one soul saved, and that was the soul of the Blessed Mother, 
the glory of that soul and the, and the happiness of that soul in heaven would offset all of the miseries of hell. Many times over, just the glory of heaven, of even one soul, uh, would be far greater in its beauty and its wonder and its goodness than all of the miseries of hell. Wow. Okay. Well, puts into perspective, in a sense, as much as possible, the glories of heaven. But it also puts into perspective the misery of hell, too. That it's not a, a, a supernatural in the sense of an infinite suffering. Right? Right. Even that is a mercy from God. Right. Okay. A uh, question about the First Fridays. Father, a viewer says, I'm on my seventh First Friday and just noticed that April's First Friday falls on Good Friday this year. Does the church make any allowances for that, or do I need to begin at the beginning again? You don't have to begin at the beginning again. <laughs> uh, the church certainly does make allowances for that. And the allowance is this, that when first Friday of any month of April is Good Friday, then it's as though it doesn't count. It's simply, it, one, traditionally, one cannot receive Holy Communion on first Friday. Uh, now, those who are going to, like, uh, let's say, a Society of St. Pius X chapel might say, well, we can receive communion on Good Friday, and say, well, we know that you can, and <laughs> we know that they do that, but that was an early change. I think it was a John Twenty-Third change, and it was a very, very significant change that helped get the ball rolling toward the Novus Ordo and the rejection of the traditional practice. In fact, when John the Twenty-Third changed that, it was extremely controversial, and it, it was like a shockwave went throughout the, the Catholic faithful because everyone knew you just did not receive Holy Communion on Good Friday. The only one who received Communion was the priest who was offering the Mass of the pre-sanctified, so-called, and that is where he received the host that was consecrated at the night, the night before, at the Mass of Holy Thursday, okay, uh, which was kept over in the altar of repose for adoration, like in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, overnight, and then brought back to the main altar and there consumed. The symbolism of it was that this is the day on which Christ died, and as he said, you know, that he was taken from us, right? And we feel that very acutely. And uh, again, we're trying to, in a sense, relive those moments and trying to live what our Lord told his apostles and what they felt and, uh, and so on. Uh, so after a thousand years or more of this practice, that's disputed, but um, it's, it's, it seems that the practice of not giving Holy Communion on Good Friday is well over a thousand years old, perhaps is much older than that. Um, than a thousand years, but anyway, when John the Twenty Third reversed, well, he didn't reverse it; he just changed it. He just instituted giving the faithful um, communion on Good Friday. It was a a shock, and, and it was startling. And people were asking, "Well, how could, how could this? How could they change that?" Um, you know, all those centuries, all those generations of Catholics understood that this was not done, and they understood why. Now, all of a sudden. It's perfectly fine, and even the right thing to do. See how it start messing with people's minds and saying, "Well, what's next? You know, what's next?" 
they braced themselves for what came next and after that and after that. It's like a snowball kept rolling. Um, so the fact that there are traditional Catholic priests of traditional Catholic groups who are using this John the Twenty Third change, this is not a good thing. It was a major step toward the Novus Ordo and away from the traditional practice. It got people used to the idea that we can change everything. But in, in any case, the church, all during those times, in honoring the first Friday, especially since St. Margaret Mary in 1680s, 81, 82, 83, brought that great devotion of the nine first Fridays from heaven, uh, came to her and she brought it then uh, on to the authorities of the church who spread it throughout the world. Um, they understood that when there was a, a good Friday falling on first Friday, um, a Catholic did not receive. And uh, therefore, regardless of where they were in fulfilling those nine first Fridays, they simply resumed the following month's first Friday. And I think it is very telling that the church says, okay, we have a choice here now. We have been telling our faithful that we want them to receive the, the, Holy, the Blessed Sacrament as Holy Communion on nine consecutive First Fridays. But we have Good Friday often, often falling on the First, the first Friday when they cannot receive communion. So the church had a choice to make. Either we give Holy Communion on First Friday, when it is Good Friday, and enable them to continue uh, receiving the, the nine First Fridays consecutively. Or we simply exempt them from receiving Communion on that Good Friday, First Friday, and tell them to resume it afterwards. And given that choice, the Church thought it was that important to guard that First Friday, that, uh, the Good Friday, and the significance of the Good Friday in not administering Holy Communion to the faithful, that it actually exempted them from that first Friday. That's how important it was to the church. And then John the 23rd came along and said, oh, well, we don't need to do that. We'll do what I say. We'll change all that. With a stroke of a pen, it just annihilates an ancient immemorial custom of the church, um, which had great significance and Unfortunately, there those who call themselves traditional who will, who will go along with that. It's not right. Yeah. Anyway, you see there's more involved in that question than meets yeah. the eye, perhaps. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Father. Um, this is the last email that I had uh, for tonight uh, mm -hmm. for you, Father. Um, a viewer says, I have two questions. First one is that if kids are being loud and screaming in mass and the parents are allowing it, would that be a mortal sin? Let's just start with that one first. Uh, would it be a mortal sin for the parents to allow the children to be unruly during mass? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I suppose you might say it could be if they, if the parents knowingly, willingly, deliberately allow their children to actually prevent other people from attending Mass worthily, and devoutly, attentively, uh, then yes, maybe insofar as they've been disruptive at the Mass, they, they, their, their children were, 
and they did nothing to prevent that, one could make an argument that they could be guilty of sin, possibly even mortal sin. I think it had to be pretty extreme for that, though, but uh, in some cases there might be extreme cases indeed. But, um, I mean, children are children. If you're going to bring them to Mass, we have to accept it. There's a problem. And in some of the traditional chapels, they're small, and you have young families, and they have little children. They can't, uh, they have one Mass. They can't, you know, leave the kids home at one parent while the other parent comes to Mass and then trade off for a second Mass. Sometimes they just have no choice but to bring the children. And, you know, your understanding goes out to these parents with young children. If they're trying sincerely to train them to attend Mass well, but you've got a toddler and or two, and uh, it makes it rather difficult. Um, so I think um, it would have to be a pretty extreme case. Parents have to get used to the idea, though. Well, look, uh, the parents growing, having these children growing up with them, the parents get used to hearing the children. The children cry, the children whine, the children shriek, maybe, at times. And sometimes the parents are, are somewhat insensitive to all the noise and the hubbub surrounding their children. The people who are not living with those children uh, night and day find them very, very distracting and um, even more than distracting. Uh, and, um, you know, the parents have to, well, first of all, uh, the, the people who aren't surrounded by that, the, the behavior of little children night and day, uh, are not used to it, and it is distressing to them. And parents of little children should understand that, that not everybody is, uh, shall we say, insensitive or immune to that behavior. And it does trouble them, and it does distract them, and it does perhaps even enervate them. So the parents have to be uh, aware of that and have to allow for that. At the same time, the people who don't grow up with little children have to realize, well, these parents have been raising these little children. And yes, they might be tone deaf a bit to the noise and, the, and the, all the movement of their kids. Uh, for all I know, I mean, maybe these children are really on their very best behavior when they're at church. Heaven only knows how they behave at home, right? So maybe the parents are thinking, oh, Johnny's being particularly good today, you know, because he hasn't bitten Mr. Schnickelfritz on the ankle, you know, crawling around under the pew. So he's being a very good boy today. Um, but, you know, ultimately, that's what you have ushers for. I mean, the priests in all the traditional chapels, they really need ushers they can count on who uh, have a very good sense uh, of what is needed and when it is needed and how it is needed, you know, for, to intervene in a case like that. And if people are finding a youngster to be a distraction for their prayer at Mass, it's really not fair, at them, fair for them either. I know it's a hardship for the parents. Uh, but they're parents, and that's what comes with the turf, you know. Sometimes you just have to take the little one out and, uh, you know, admonish him uh, that, to behave himself. Now, you know, obviously, you get an 18-month-old, it's not so easy to do. But by the time they get to be three and four years old, I mean, obviously, by the time they're even two, you at least start teaching them, start training them. Unfortunately, sometimes you get families with little kids back in the so-called crying room or the nursery, and they think it's okay to let the kids run wild back there. And so it's the playroom. 
And that's not the point of the nursery. The point of the nursery and the crying room is to take your children back there so they won't be a distraction while they're learning how to attend Mass and behave themselves. So while the parents are back there with the little children, the point is not to turn the children loose and let them turn into a playground. The point is to teach the children there how to behave themselves so that when they go into the church, the children will have learned a little bit, learned better how to be good at Mass, right? Um, so, uh, you know, the parents themselves have to learn. They have to learn how to teach their children the right thing. Um, one day, shortly after my arrival here, um, I had probably half a dozen of the ladies with little children uh, stay for Mass in the morning. I offered Mass when the school day began, so the ladies who uh, delivered their older children to school could stay and attend the Mass uh, about 8, 8, 10 in the morning. And they had little, little ones with them. Virtually all of them had little ones with them. And it was a very noisy Mass. Um, now, a lot of that had to do with the acoustics in our church, because it's large, it's beautiful, and it's, the acoustics are very good. Um, so they were sitting in the front pews, and they had the children, and the children were basically, um, they were not being guided and corrected. Uh, they were crawling around, uh, they, I wouldn't say they were running around, but they were articulating, well, verbal, no, <laughs> they were uh, making noises, okay, uh, vocalizing, <laughs> they were vocalizing, and so nothing uh, out of the ordinary for kids, okay. Um, at the end of the Mass, I turned around and I said, uh, you know, if you look at the shape of the sanctuary here, the walls are, are angled so as to focus the sound right where the priest stands at the altar. When the priest is standing in front of the altar at the tabernacle, he's fa and he's facing away from the people, and he speaks, you can actually hear him all the way in the back of the church because the sound is projected off the back walls and travels down the church and uh, maintains its force. You might have noticed that, but the opposite is true also. I said, you know, if you have sound coming from out in the church, it comes into the sanctuary, reflects off the angled walls, and focuses right where the priest is, is standing so that all of the noise in the church gathers there and is focused right where the priest is standing before the tabernacle, such as during the canon of the Mass. You know? So um, you have to realize that this is the way the church is instructed. So don't be surprised if uh, all of the sounds that your children make come together there in the priest's ear at that time, and they can be rather distracting. So I just ask you to please, uh, you know, help the, help the children be a little quieter. I was trying to be uncharacteristically gentle about it um, and understanding because, I mean, I, I, I do empathize, sympathize with moms with little children because I know that's no easy task. That's heroic. And uh, so anyway, I, I went into the sacristy, took the vestments off, came back, left out the community rail to make a Thanksgiving, and all of a sudden I, I have this presence a cassock standing next to me. And in the cassock was Father Greenwell. 
And Father Greenwell uh, was standing next to me to get my attention, so I looked up at him. He said, the ladies would like a word with you when you're done with your Thanksgiving. And he had this, this grin on his face that, but that did not bode well. And so I thought, and so I said to him, was it, is it that bad? He said, oh, yes. And then he walked away. <laughs> so I thought, oh, boy, I have a big trouble now. So the ladies all gathered in the, in the rectory in the meantime. And so when I went into the rectory, they were all gathered there in the parlor. And, uh, you know, they expressed to me that here was the one chance that they had to actually pray without having to, what should I say, be like the, you know, the, the, the cattle driver or whatever, to, to herd the children and keep them exceptionally quiet. And they could actually leave the children to be children. Uh, you know, I mean, they weren't dismantling the pews. They weren't setting fire to anything. They weren't doing anything destructive. Certainly, they wouldn't have allowed that. But they thought that this is the time they could actually, as a group of young moms, actually focus on the Mass. And it was a special moment for them. They were looking forward to it. And I, I kind of messed that up. But anyway, uh, but I said, well, I understand that. I mean, they were upset about this. Some of them were in tears because they thought they'd been rebuked. Uh, because they finally, they'd been craving, they'd been craving the opportunity to do that. And I understood that. I appreciated that. But I did point out one thing to them. I said, well, look, um, uh, maybe you could look at it this way, though, you know. Weeks on end, you bring the little children to Mass, and you're trying, like really good moms, to train those little children about what to do and what not to do at Mass, and how to behave at Mass, and how important it is to be really, really good at Mass. And you're training them, and you're teaching them consistently throughout and you come to a day like this, when you say, I don't have to do that at this Mass. Now I can let them do whatever they feel like doing. Uh, I mean, it's not, it's not horrible, it's nothing criminal, but it's basically letting, letting them know the restraints are off and they can just do childlike and childish things. I said, but you realize that all of that labor you put into that for weeks and weeks and weeks now, they come to Mass, and that doesn't count anymore. That, that, that doesn't apply here. And do you realize that you can actually have basically lost much of what you had taught them all that time because all of a sudden what you had consistently been teaching them now doesn't apply. And the children revert to their childlike behavior uh, in the mass, and now it's almost as though you might have started over again, you know. So, um, you know, my, my concern is not only for the priest being able to concentrate during the canon of the mass, which is important enough, but also I just don't want all your efforts, your heroic efforts to be wasted, uh, such that, you know, by, you know, just letting it go on time, uh, that all of a sudden, you know, and the children, the, the children know. They haven't reached the age of reason, but boy, they pick up on these things, right? And uh, they need that, con con that consistent training. And when the consistency isn't there, it just doesn't work. So uh, they actually saw my point. As I let them know, I did see their point. And um, anyway, it is important that there be that consistent training and uh, young 
parents of young children are just learning themselves how to deal with that. Hopefully, they'll find some older uh, parishioners whom they trust and who are very gentle who can lend a hand and, and help them deal with that too. Uh, it's hard though when you have uh, in a, a young family, but you might already have you know two or three or four children under the age of six or seven, you know, and you have to corral them all and, and train them all. So we have to be very compassionate and understanding of that. Um, and finally, Tom, just to wrap things up here, I'm on a great monologue here, but um, I've told the parents this at baptisms, and sometimes after masses when the children, shall we say, are particularly vociferous in uh, stating their, their claim, their, their cause, <laughs> and complaints, and complaints. But uh, tell them, look, you know, it used to bother me uh, when children were babbling, crying, shrieking during Mass. Um, but some time ago, it, it stopped bothering me. Now, shrieking, yeah, that still does bother me, uh, because that should not be allowed, and child should be taken out. But otherwise, if it's just a child crying or a child babbling, it, it really doesn't faze me that much. And uh, because it, it struck me at one point, well, you know, as a priest, I know what it is to hear complaints, 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 complaints. People bring problems, things that are not right, things that are irritating them, bothering them about me, about their spouses, about their kids, about teachers, about anybody. Um, uh, you know, every, everybody has something uh, that is kind of nettling them at any given moment. <laughs> The priest often seems to be the target of these things. Uh, maybe people think the priest can do something about it. Maybe he can, but maybe he can't in any case. But, you know, as parents, you, you listen to complaints and complaints and complaints all the time. That's what a parent's job. As priests, we do the same. We listen to complaints and hardships and struggles and sufferings and so on. And um, then I have a little child who's babbling or burbling at Mass, are crying, and I think, you know, compared to all of the griping and whining and complaining that I not only hear every day, but that I myself do of the griping and complaining and the whining that I myself do, this child's crying probably is like music to the ears, well, the angels had ears, music to the saints in heaven, and the angels here in their own angelic way. And it probably, the, the cry of a child probably sounds like music to them compared to the noises we adults make every day endlessly about complaining and finding fault and griping about this and whining about that. Um, and ever since I, I thought of that, not only as it applies to others talking to me, but even myself, I'm in all honesty, the crying of the child just hasn't bothered me anymore. So, uh, you know, I think, well, it, gee, I mean, if, the, if an angel in heaven had a choice of listening to me or listening to that child, hands down, the child, the, the child would win. <laughs> um, and not only that, but I mean, the child probably has more to complain about than I do, or most anybody else I hear from. Because the child might feel very discomfort, you know, or something, can't articulate it, but can cry, that's the way. 
So, um, you know, I wonder, well, maybe sometimes the child do have actually, does have more of a reason to be, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, noisy than a lot of the adults. Um, so anyway, uh, for what it's worth, okay, I think we all need a lot of patience toward the little children because uh, they're the coming generation of traditional Catholics. And uh, we have to show a great deal of uh, patience and uh, even, you'd say, tolerance to them. At the same time, though, we all want to see them grow up. And they're not going to grow up unless we teach them how mm-hmm. to grow up and grow out of that childhood phase and become the stellar traditional Catholic adults like ourselves. We never complain about anything <laughs> yeah. and are so patient. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. if I think I'm being facetious, better facetious than sarcastic, I guess. Right? Yeah. Okay. Here we are in Holy Week, though, so. That's right. And if ever there's a time to unite our souls with our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, it's now. And how do we unite ourselves with him during Holy Week? But by our patience, right? By our patience. That's the most important thing we have to offer to God every day. Take up your cross every day and go after me. That's what our Lord said, right? This is the time to do it. Of all the times during the year, take up the cross in patience. So during this week, this holy week, let's do that. Let's exercise great patience toward ourselves and our weaknesses and not indulge them, but again, not be downcast by them with each other and with even with the little screaming child in the back of the church or even in the front of the church. Let's be patient about this. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Father. Thank you uh, for all of that. We got through a lot of emails here, a lot of content. Uh, I know we had some current events that we wanted to touch on, but um, mm-hmm. maybe we can see. Well, we we're going to talk about the prosecution of Donald Trump, right? Yes. Something that certainly seems to be worthy of comment. Perhaps next time uh, we'll be able to do that. In the meantime, certainly wish everyone a blessed Holy Week and a glorious Easter yes, and Easter time. Yes, same to you. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.